Jonathan is one to use illustrations from movies, so I thought I would bring a movie illustration. Only the movie that I'm talking about is old enough that some of you weren't even around when it first came out. How many of you see, have seen Godspell? Okay, if you have your hand up, you're probably over 50. I think it came out more than 50 years ago, right? Late 60s maybe, right around 1970. The, the one scene in Spell that started going through my mind just yesterday was the beginning when John the Baptist, I think it's John the Baptist, is singing, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to try to sing that. You can rest easy. <laughs> but it's, it's, it just, it's a melody that sticks with you, and the words are descriptive of the mission of John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And of course, he took, took that from Isaiah. I also thought about the family of churches that Trinity was part of before Redeemer became a, a thing and Trinity and Remedy merged. Um, that family, we would go to conferences and they had a practice at those conferences of whoever the plenary speaker was, somebody else would do an introduction, sort of preparing the way. Sometimes those introductions got a little lengthy and you wondered who was in the spotlight. Was it the introducer or the person who was doing the speaking? But that's neither here nor there. Preparing the way. You wouldn't imagine a head of state coming to the United States and just showing up. There's always preparation. There's always news release. There's always TV crews on hand. Um, it's not exactly what's going on here in John 1. As I said, the spotlight, even though he's, John the Baptist is mentioned in verse 15, now the spotlight is trained on him for the next 20 verses or so. It's important to keep in mind what, what the Baptist is quoted as saying in verse 15. This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. This is the key to understanding John the Baptist, as we will see. He will repeat this statement in verse 30 of this chapter, chapter showing that he knows his role. Indeed, later in the gospel, he utters the statement showing conclusively the truth of this when in chapter 3, verse 30, he says, he, referring to Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So we could say he didn't just know his role, he embraced it. Other than what we've already seen, which is kind of minimal, I'm curious. What do you know about John the Baptist? Think of this as a, an unannounced open book quiz. You can use your Bible, just gonna take a couple minutes, but just what do you know? Give me a factoid about John the Baptist. What do we know about him? I was going to get somebody <clears throat> to write the answers on a whiteboard up here, but she declined. <laughs> I'm not saying who that was. But what do you know about John the Baptist? 
is Jesus' cousin, okay? We'll talk a little bit about that. Jolie. His mother was Elizabeth. Anything special about Elizabeth? <laughs> okay. Cheryl. Yeah, not just kind of muted, he was. Yeah. All right, so he was Jesus' cousin. His mother was Elizabeth. She was beyond childbearing years. So this birth was a miraculous birth. What else? Rich. Okay, we'll talk. He said, because of John the Baptist's strong testimony, somebody was calling for his head, and we will talk about that shortly. Anybody else? Pat. Yes, John was filled with the Holy Spirit and leaped in his mother's womb. I'm not aware of anybody else ever of whom that was said. Does anybody know anyone who, who was filled with the Spirit in their mother's womb? Okay. One or two more. Pat? Oh, I'm, no. Kathy? Uh, he, lived he lived in the wilderness. He lived in the wilderness. We don't know much about John the Baptist between his birth and when he you know, comes on the scene in public. Probably 30 years later, or almost 30 years. Yes, Suzanne? His diet, he ate locusts, bugs, and wild honey. Okay. Pat? He was from the line of the priests. Right. How do we know that? Because his father, Zechariah, got the word from the angel when he was in the temple burning incense and what do we know about his mother? His mother Elizabeth was, we're told, a daughter of Aaron. So he's got a pedigree. One more. Oh, all right, two more. Brian. Jesus said no one was greater. Interesting. And Linda. He had a message that he delivered fearlessly, didn't he? Well, thank you for all that help. If we didn't have the other Gospels, the Gospels beside the Gospel of John, our appreciation for John might not be what it is, but we do have a fuller picture from the others much of which we've already heard, but let me just, because I took the time to write it down, let me just share it with you. <clears throat> we know that he's related to Jesus. Luke 1 tells us he was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, a priest and a daughter of Aaron, who were childless until they were, until they were beyond childbearing age, but who were unable 
to conceive, I'm sorry, who were enabled to conceive John miraculously after a fearsome encounter that Zechariah had with an angel in the temple. Everybody who encountered angels in those days fell down on their face pretty much. John's name is assigned by the angel at that time. And notice the specific, in the passage that Debbie read, the specific genealogical, geographical, and historical detail. This is no once upon a time story. This is rooted in space-time history. Notice too that this answer to prayer for Zechariah and Elizabeth almost certainly came long after they'd stopped praying that prayer for a child. They were well beyond childbearing years. Do you keep praying for a child when you're my age? I don't think so. <laughs> or Pat's age. Um, but that should be an encouragement to any who fear, feel that their prayers aren't being heard. Could the answer still be coming? I read an article this past week or the week before that for God, all times are present. So he hears our prayers and retains them and they are before him just as if they were just prayed. So that prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed was never out of God's mind. We're also told in Luke that John was filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. We've already talked about that. Let me read a couple of verses um, pertaining to that. Luke 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. As I said, I think that's a unique thing, maybe in all of human history, that there was a child, pre-born child, filled with the Holy Spirit. While we know that John and Jesus were related, we aren't told exactly how. Somebody said they were cousins. Well, maybe distant cousins. But if you think, if you consider that Mary, Mary's lineage was traceable to the tribe of Judah, and Elizabeth was the daughter of Aaron, and Zechariah was a priest. They weren't even from the same tribe of Israel, but they were related. Were they cousins, distant cousins? Perhaps. But I think as commonly conceived that they were like first cousins who played together all the time, I would say not so much. We can calculate that John was about five or six months older than Jesus. 
Why? Because Elizabeth was in her sixth month when Gabriel appears to Mary, according to Luke 1.36. We know that John the Baptist kind of parachutes into the story as an adult, as the last of the Old Testament prophets. His appearance is described in Mark 1, 4 through 6. He was, he was clothed in a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. Anybody else you can remember who was described that way? Elijah. Elijah. We'll talk more about Elijah. <clears throat> but people who were students of Scripture must have made that connection when they saw John the Baptist. Okay, we don't know what he's been doing all those years, but when he shows, shows up preaching and baptizing in the wilderness, he creates quite a stir. So much so that the Bible says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. If this had happened in our day, we'd have seen a social media buzz. However the word spread, it was quite the phenomenon, but notice that John wasn't concerned with becoming a celebrity. Instead, he deflected attention from himself and preached about Jesus. Notice that in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Let's go back to verse 6. Now John was, um, was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Anybody here willing to exchange their diet for locusts and honey? Even if you're on one of those weird keto things. or I think I'll stay with food that's familiar. Um... And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a little more about that shortly. And he preached about sin. As we've already seen, seen in the passage read earlier, Here's the Old Testament prophet coming out. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I don't know if that's the way you introduce your message if you want to become a celebrity. You and this isn't just directed at the, the priesthood, the Pharisees, the ones who were typically on the other side from Jesus. These are all the people. He greets them by saying, you brood of vipers, you snakes. All right. No wonder he's attracting attention. Not surprisingly, this individual came to the attention of the religious establishment. The men who were in charge noticed and sent a delegation to investigate. They didn't want their position to be threatened or undermined in any way. 
And this is in spite of the fact that John had, as I said, good credentials as belonging to the priestly or Levitical line. Father was a priest, mother was a daughter of Aaron, the first high priest in the time of Moses. He's, He's got a good pedigree, but they're investigating. We also know that as he was in the last weeks of his life, and somebody referred to this, John had questions about who Jesus really was. And we'll look back at that shortly. Um, And that he was the victim of Herod's fury as a result of speaking fearlessly about the immorality of Herod's taking his brother's wife which leads to a tragic and sordid story, but we aren't able to go there today. One more thing we know. In Matthew 11, verse 7 and following, we read an extraordinary word of commendation, and this was referred to. I'd like to read just a little bit of it. Um, From Jesus pertaining to John. And this comes on the heels of John's disciples asking the question. He's in prison. He sends his disciples to ask the question of Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus, in Matthew 11, verse 11 and following. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. No one greater than John the Baptist. And this at a time when John the Baptist was maybe struggling with some doubts of his own own about Jesus. More on this later. Keep saying that. More later. How long are we going to be here today? Don't worry. So we come to today's passage in John 1, which we've already read. And the passage closes by saying, These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. All right, this this committee of investigators had to cross the Jordan River. I don't know, could they wait across? Did they have ferries to take them across? But they had to cross to a town called Bethany, not the Bethany that you're thinking of where Mary and Martha lived, but it was on the east side of the Jordan. But they found John. What's going on here? This strange-looking preacher shows up out of the wilderness, dressed in this camel hair and leather, begins preaching, calling the people to repent, and baptizing those who come to him. Note that baptism was not unknown at this time. Not the baptism that we think of people getting saved and getting baptized as Christians. Now, those who wanted to convert to Judaism from other pagan religions would undergo baptism sometimes. And it's said that there were sects of Jewish mystics who would as well. And in some cases, they'd baptize daily. But in those cases, the person would baptize or wash themselves. For John to be doing the baptizing, the dunking, or pouring, or whatever, however they did it, was unusual. And as a result, 
he gets investigated by the Jews, which is a term used in John's Gospel to refer most often to the Jewish leaders. A term used, uh, to re- as I said, to refer to the Jewish leaders, especially those from Jerusalem and Judea. Now, if we had a map, <coughs> so I don't do slides, I don't do maps, I don't even do whiteboards, unless I get help. But if, if we had a map, if you probably in the back of your Bible, you have a map of the Israel in the time of Jesus. And you'll note that Jerusalem and Bethany were in the southern part of the country. Galilee, I should do it this way, southern part of the country, Galilee is all the way around. On the other side of Samaria, from the hub of the Jewish religion, Jerusalem. Galilee, um, uh, Nazareth, the places that, where Jesus grew up and mostly hung out, on the other side. Jesus' hometown was in Galilee. Galilee was considered the backwater of Israel, hence that cynical question posed by Nathaniel later in John 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He wasn't just asking a question, he was making a statement, a derisive statement, a derogatory statement. While it's easy for for us to conclude that the Jews, the Jews were up to no good, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has this to say, Granted the wide influence of the, the, that the Baptist exerted, it would have been irresponsible of the leaders if they had failed to check him out. Most likely, end of quote, most likely John was unknown to the Jews, and if you can imagine someone showing up in Tom's River, out of nowhere, claiming to speak for God, and renting a hall, attracting crowds, Your pastors would probably want to know what that was all about, what the message was that was being delivered. That would be the responsible thing to do. Of course, the dangers today, you don't have to come physically to a town and rent a hall. You can just throw up a website and and, uh, do something online. But that's another message for another time. Here in John 1, we are confronted with this strange-looking prophet who is the talk of the town, so to speak. They were going out to him from everywhere, leading to the conclusion that the people of his day lived in expectation of something big happening. After all, it had been hundreds of years since there had been a word from the Lord through a prophet. You've heard of the 400 silent years. This is right on the end of that period of time. Was this the time for the silence to be broken? Apparently, there were those who thought it was. Now, John is asked in this passage if he was the Messiah. We can conclude this from his response in verse 20, I am not the Christ. We don't don't hear the question that precedes that, but he says, I am not the Christ. So they must have asked him, are you the Messiah? I am not. Two other times he is questioned, Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? 
Both times he replies that he is not. Now these questions refer to ideas held by John's contemporaries. There were those who thought, apparently, that Elijah would be coming back at some point. After all, think about it. He didn't die. He was taken bodily into heaven while still alive. Maybe he was there just waiting. And Jesus himself seems to identify John the Baptist with Elijah in Matthew chapter 11, which you may still be there, I am, um, verse 13 and 14. For all the pro- this is Jesus speaking now. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus doesn't hesitate to connect John's ministry with Elijah's ministry. And yet John, for whatever reason, said in answer to the question, are you Elijah? Well, literally, no. But that was his response. The next question And there are other places, by the way, where Jesus makes a connection between John and Elijah. In fact, the angel in Luke 1 connects the ministry of Elijah with that of John. But the next question, are you the prophet? And this refers to Deuteronomy 8.10. Going to jump around a little bit today. Deuteronomy 8.10.18. This is Moses' part of his final message to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 8.10, beginning verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great, great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the question, are you the prophet, refers to this prophet. Probably this passage just read is probably best understood as a messianic prophecy. So, of course, John is not the Messiah, so he denies being that prophet. Well, this delegation from the Jews is running out of options. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? They know that they will be expected to have an answer for those who sent them. And John replies somewhat indirectly by quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So again, in the words of D.A. Carson, the Baptist may refuse to identify himself with any expected eschatological figure, But that does not mean he is simply another itinerant preacher. He may not be the Messiah or the prophet, 
but he is the voice predicted by Isaiah, the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Throughout this entire exchange, John continually deflects the spotlight from himself toward Jesus. It isn't as though he's playing head games with those who are questioning him, but he wants to be certain they don't come away with a wrong impression. Remember, this is the man who said of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. And he also said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It goes without saying, or it should, that we should all have the same attitude. Would that that could be said of all those who preach the word. In verse 24, the ESV, the version I have, says this delegation was sent from the Pharisees. According to, again, D.A. Carson, this is unlikely and could better be translated Some Pharisees who were in the deputation asked him. The point is, the Pharisees weren't the guys running the show at this time. They were were factions within the Jewish leadership. The Pharisees were there, and they were the, the group that Jesus most often locked horns with because of their critique of him. But it was the Sadducees who outnumbered everybody else on the council, the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were extremely scrupulous about observing every minute detail of the law of God as they understood it. They were very critical of Jesus, accusing him of violating the law of Moses and uh, the Sabbath. And as such, they were on the receiving end of some of Jesus' most emphatic criticism. Think of Matthew chapter 22, note You don't have to go there now, but think of his woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, repeated time after time after time throughout that chapter. So they were on on the receiving end of that. The final, final question asked of John is in verse 24. Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In reply, John declares, I baptized with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. D.A. Carson again says, the Baptist's words continue a theme in the prologue and betray extraordinary humility in the context of a society where a student was expected to do for his teacher Whatever a slave might do, except take off his shoes. This was asking too much. John the Baptist makes no exceptions, not even this one, and thereby defines his mission to Jesus, the Messiah, in a moving way. What John is saying here is he's not even the servant of Jesus, he's less than a servant. A servant could be expected to remove the shoes of his teacher. John wouldn't even presume to do that. That's where he places himself on the totem pole, so to speak. Think about that in the context of what Jesus did when he washed the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper. What amazing humility. So what are we to make of this passage? 
we have John the Baptist, a figure who is surely not insignificant in the Gospels, stirring up interest among the Jews of his day, but refusing to place himself as the center of attention, even for a moment. Then we have the Jews, the religious leaders who are apparently concerned with policing the orthodoxy of any itinerant preacher who might lead the people astray. Keep in mind that the average resident of Israel at this time did not have ready access to his own copy of the scriptures. If it was a small town, their synagogue might have some of the scrolls, scrolls maybe not even the entire uh, Old Testament Bible that, um, that was their Bible of that day. So it's not like people are going to you know, go online and check it out and you know, get the references and do all that sort of thing, which is easy for us to do. We can see the need, therefore, for teaching by an unknown preacher to be vetted by those who knew the word of God better than most do and who did have access to the scrolls. The investigators never, I found this interesting, I only realized this within the last 24 hours, never ask about who John is pointing to. They're more concerned about the sign than about the object being pointed to. As if, if you were driving from here to Texas and you got to Tennessee and there was a sign pointing to Texas and you said, oh, okay. No. They, were, they didn't even want to know what the destination was that John was talking about. One other observation, think back to Matthew 11 where John the Baptist sent disciples to Jesus with this question, are you the one who is to come or do we look for another? Here at the place in his life where John the Baptist has borne witness to Jesus as the Christ, are we hear, hearing some doubt in the question? According to the ESV study Bible notes, John is probably concerned because his present imprisonment, he was in prison for telling Herod that he had sinned by taking his brother's wife, if you recall. His present imprisonment does not match his understanding of the coming one's arrival, which was to bring blessing on those who repented on, and judgment on those who did not, did not. Here's John, who called others to repentance and who prepared the people for the coming of Jesus, now locked up in prison. Jesus, he might have thought, thought this isn't the way it was supposed to work out. Jesus' response clarifies that his ministry is in line with the promises about the time of salvation as seen in the evidence of his works. He sends John's disciples back to him saying, tell John what you've seen. What, what, what is happening? The, the dead are being raised, the lame, the lame walk. People here have the, are having the gospel preached to them. And then he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, which the ESV study Bible calls a mild rebuke. Here's the point. If even someone like John the Baptist could have wrestled with doubts about his faith, 
There's no shame for any of us going through something similar. Jesus understands our weakness, and his heart is gentle and lowly toward his children. There's no one here who hasn't been there, just wrestling with some questions and some doubts. And that's good news, Redeemer. Good news that Jesus doesn't snuff us out the second we have and express some doubts a bit about him. Maybe you're there now. Or maybe you're one who has never bowed the knee to Jesus. If so, I would invite you to consider who he is and what he has done. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that passages like this can easily puzzle us. And yet, what we're glad for is that Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. We're glad that we're told honestly about struggles that even someone like John the Baptist may have had. And we're glad that when we go through dark times, deep waters, we can trust that you will be there, that you will walk with us and help us. Lord, thank you for being with us this morning. And would you continue, continue to show yourself as the one who is gentle and lowly and yet who has the power to save. I pray that in your name. Amen.